This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Looking to refresh your closet, home, or beauty routine this spring? Walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop. From chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware. Go to walmart.com slash now trending. That's walmart.com slash now trending for the hottest fashion, home, and beauty finds. Your style at Walmart. Welcome to the Radio Times podcast with me, Rihanna Dillon. If you are a regular listener, you might have noticed that something's a little bit different, as Jane Garvey is always the one to kick us off. But sadly, she's not very well today. So in her absence, I'm joined by Radio Times TV writer and critic, David Butcher. Hello. Hello, Rihanna. How are you doing? I am very well. How are you? Uh, well, not too bad. Not too bad at all. Excited to be sitting in what I guess is traditionally your seat. How is life over at the Radio Times Tower? It's always very odd at this time of year because we've done the double issue for Christmas a few weeks ago. We're now sort of halfway through January, so it's very odd because we're so far ahead. And just as everybody else is getting excited about <laughs> Christmas television and saying to me, you know, what's good this year? I'm kind of thinking, oh, I can't remember now because uh, it seems so long ago. But um, but a lot is the answer. There's plenty of good stuff. Well, yes, we've kind of dragged you back to talk about all of that. So we yes, do have exactly. an exciting bumper edition of the podcast, which is here to see you through Christmas. So, David, tell us what shows we're going to be talking about today. Well, we're going to be talking about the big BBC drama, the sort of centrepiece of their offering, A Very British Scandal with Claire Foy. Uh, we're going to be talking about Don't Look Up, which is a big Netflix film. I think it's going to be in some cinemas as well. and has an incredible cast. Uh, Encanto, the new Disney animation. Um, Amazing Mr. Blunden from Sky, which is written by and starring and directed by Mark Gatiss. Um, and finally, Around the World in 80 Days, which is the sort of international co-production the BBC have acquired the rights for it here. It's got David Tennant uh, as Phileas Fogg. It's kind of a kid's Victorian adventure story um, and big budget. Incredible. So much to get through. And we've also got two huge interviews. I talked to David Tennant about his new BBC series Around the World in 80 Days. And I was also lucky enough to speak with the genius behind Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. So here's a clip of Lin-Manuel talking about writing the songs for Encanto, which, as you say, is the new Disney film that we're going to be reviewing in a bit. So I asked how his personal experiences helped him write the songs. I'm the youngest sibling as well. Um, mm -hmm. And I have an older sister who I know got a worse deal than I did. When you're the baby of the family and you're a boy, um, right. you get away with more. <laughs> and um, so in a lot of ways, the song is also kind of a love letter slash apology to my older sister. We're also going to be discussing our top three TV shows of 2021, which is an impossible task that we've set it's not, you. It's not easy to get it down to three, is it? We're also going to be hearing about what you, the audience, think has been the best TV this year. We've got all of that to come. So let's get to these reviews. First up, it's A Very British Scandal, which is three episodes on BBC One on consecutive nights, starting on Boxing Day at 9pm, just when you are completely done with... Probably your family, the turkey, booze, 
everything. You'll have this to look forward to. All episodes are available on iPlayer after the first episode has gone out. And here's a clip from the trailer. Captain Ian Campbell. I know who you are. Be my duchess. Yes. He's a married man, carrying on as if he isn't. Ian Campbell, Duke of Argyle. Margaret Campbell, Duchess of Argyle. I've read so much about you. I feel I know you. Do you? Everything is about sex. I like it very much, and I'm extremely good at it. How many men have you got? How many women have you got? Every morning, I wonder which Ian I'm going to wake up to. If you're drunk last night, and you're drunk now. Here's the thought, Margaret. Pay the bills. It's what you're for. We have to stop doing terrible things to each other. What terrible things have you done? I've told Jane multiple times how much I'm obsessed with Claire Foy, so I am very excited for this series. But tell us a bit about what it is and what you thought of it, David. Uh, Well, short answer, I I loved it. The thing we should say at the outset, because some people will remember a very English scandal, which was uh, Hugh Grant playing... Uh, Jeremy Thorpe in the scandal about uh, his gay affair in the early 70s and there was a sort of attempted Mm. murder plot and so on. This is very different. Some people will remember the real-life events or will will have read about them, uh, which is the divorce scandal in 1963 when the Duke and Duchess of Argyle ended up in an Edinburgh court. And a lot of stuff spilled out into the public domain that was incredibly... Um, saucy, basically. Margaret had a habit of taking... She had a very early Polaroid cameras and she'd be having sex, she'd take pictures. She Some of these came out and this famous one was her with a man whose head you couldn't see and she was in a very compromising position, shall we say. Mm. Anyway, this basically spools back and sees it from the point of view of Margaret, played by Claire Foy, who, when we first sort of meet it, it's the post-war years, it's the late 40s, she was kind of a society it girl of her time. She was very beautiful and stylish and rich. And she, on a train, bumps into Captain Ian Campbell, played by Paul Bettany. They just kind of fall in love, embark on this wild affair. Um, He takes her to this huge Scottish estate that he, uh, well, he doesn't have yet. It's Inverara Castle, which he's likely to inherit because uh, he's a distant cousin of the the current Duke. Um, She's blown away by all this. They marry, but then their problems really start. It's written by Sarah Phelps. Some people may know she's written a whole string of Agatha Christie adaptations for the BBC over the last few years. Uh, And then there were none, Witness for the Prosecution, Ordeal by Innocence, all of which do a similar thing to what this does, which is you take that sort of very glamorous world of upper-class British life in the the mid-20th century, and you have lots of gorgeous actors in lovely clothes, in beautiful interiors, uh, basic, but having what looks like an incredibly wonderful, glamorous time. But underneath, they are all very unhappy. It's all miserable as sin. They're all repressed. They're all messed up. Uh, It's almost like Sarah Phelps has sort of invented a genre of cocktails and cruelty, basically. And underneath the beauty, it's horrific for Margaret. And it's also a great story about the sexism of the time and the fact that she is kind of trapped in this world where she's a free spirit, but she she cannot be herself. 
It is really interesting how she is so sexually active and really proud of that. She talks about how much she enjoys sex and for a woman of that era to talk explicitly about that. I mean, we start off the the, the series at this cocktail party, like you say, hosted by Julia Davis, oh, yeah. who is always, as soon as yes. you see her in anything, you know, she's something, something naughty is going to happen. And, they, <laughs> and the best thing, which is so, it's, it feels quite tame by today's standards because you might just get this at a hen party, but she starts off her cocktail party with wind up golden fallacy that sort of vibrate and <laughs> like run around all over the table and this is a source of great entertainment but it is so funny watching that because it's so at odds with how how we've seen Claire Foy previously you know if you have seen her work in The Crown it's of a very similar era but it is so different and the same class as well it's just it's in terms of content, it is far more wicked. Um, and so I, I sort of, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. But of course, that all comes, as you say, at a cost, because you know yeah. that she is going to be annihilated for being so verbal about how much she loves sex, because that was not the darn thing. No, absolutely. And it's fine for yeah. the Duke to have affairs, but it's made quite clear, no, 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 you can't do that. And there's a lovely scene with that that brilliant Julia Davis character you mentioned later on, she has a go at Margaret when the scandal is starting to spill out and she she talks about how she's letting the side down. You know, she's letting light in on the mystery of the aristocracy and they can't afford that. And you realise, well, this, yeah, this is the beginning of the 60s and this is a moment in that process when people started to giggle at the aristocracy for being a bit ridiculous, but they were just like the rest of us, really. Yes. We should also say that Paul Bettany plays a very good cad. He's excellent in this. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful performance from from Paul Bettany and there's there's good performances all all through the cast. I mean, it's it's not it's not festive you by any means. It is not, but it is on over Christmas. There is a long tradition in this country of watching miserable stuff over Christmas to, to feel better about ourselves and the country. I mean, the soaps do it famously, of course. Yes. Uh, there's always disasters and, <laughs> uh, and misery in the soaps. And it does seem to be something that we like sort of warming our hands on, uh, particularly just after Christmas when we're, we're maybe feeling a bit uh, bloated and hungover and, as you say, fed up with our families. Uh, but it kind of lifts our spirit to see that we're not alone in that. Something to indulge in then, a very British scandal starting on Boxing Day at 9pm on BBC One and all episodes available on iPlayer after that first episode has gone out. So next up is Don't Look Up. This is in selected cinemas now and then Netflix from Christmas Eve at 8am. Here it is. What? what Dr Mindy is trying to say is that there's a comet headed directly towards Earth. And according to NASA's computers, that object is going to hit the Pacific Ocean at 62 miles due west off the coast of Chile. And then what happens? Like a tidal wave? No. It will be far more catastrophic. There will, there will be mile-high tsunamis fanning out all across the globe. If this comet makes impact, it will have the power of, of, of a billion Hiroshima bombs. There will be magnitude... 10 or 11 earthquakes. You're, you're breathing weird. It's, it's, uh, it's making me uncomfortable. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to articulate the science. I know, but it's like so stressful. like trying to like listen. I to don't what... think you understand the gravity of the situation. So this is a very sort of self-congratulatory movie starring a billion A-listers about the end of the world. Not thanks to a pandemic, actually, but thanks to a meteorite. I think it's that weird timing where this was already 
sort of conceived before the pandemic happened and now is just a little bit too close to home. So Leonardo DiCaprio, as you heard there, is a professor and then Jennifer Lawrence is his student who actually discovers the meteorite. And then Meryl Streep turns up as this very Trumpy president, complete with a red hat, who convinces the majority of the US to ignore their impending doom. Jonah Hill, who you also heard in that clip. Actually, that was a good clip to play because that was funny. I laughed um, for one of the very few times in this movie. So he plays her aide and her son, and he is a complete narcissist who just dines out on his mother's power. And then, because you alluded to this earlier about just how kind of stuffed full this is with huge names, Kate Blanchett and then Tyler Perry turn up as two talk show hosts who invite Leonardo DiCaprio's character onto the show, but are more interested in the fluff and trying to seduce him. And so there's all this kind of Fox News sort of thing. It's all so close to real life that it's not it's not really amusing in any way. And it's not even that satirical because it's not clever enough. It's just mimicking real life that we've all just gone through. I don't want to sit through a movie of the last two years. I read a thing that the the guy who I think wrote it and directed Adam McKay, the reason he arrived at this story was because he wanted to try and get do a story about climate change and how everyone, you know, climate change keeps hitting us in the face and we keep sort of carrying on with our lives and ignoring it. I mean, I haven't seen it. I should say I haven't seen it. But it sounds like he's kind of overloaded the cast with all these giant movie stars. Mm. I think you can have too many big names. You certainly can. And the thing is about Adam McKay, yeah, those sort of earlier films like Anchorman and Step Brothers, I think they have such a brilliant cult following. But I'm really not a fan of um, The Big Short and Vice, which he also helmed. And because they are just so sort of smug. And Mm -hmm. he's one of those directors now that can just get anybody and everybody in the glitterati to come and be in his movies. And so he really exploits that and it's never to a good end and that's what's so frustrating and it feels as though there's something that he's satirizing there to do with the sort of public discourse in america at the moment and as you say there's a slight sense that maybe they're sort of patting themselves on the back for being so wonderfully liberal and seeing through it all and so on that doesn't feel like it's it's enough and also not everywhere's like america so it may not resonate in quite the same way here i mean i don't know whether whether this well we'll find out whether it'll be a uh, a success in America, but it does. It feels like it's it's a bit like yes. watching Saturday Night Live, which which for us as Brits used to our brand of satire can often feel a bit sort of heavy-footed and not as nice it's on its feet as we're used to from things like The Thick of It. You're right, there is no subtlety yes. in any of this and that's I, I just prefer that sort of writing. The performances, let's talk about that for a minute because Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio are great. They are decent performances. Oh, that's good. I mean, people are already talking about Meryl Streep being snubbed for a Golden Globe for this performance. I mean, she's not Midas. Not everything she touches turns to gold, certainly not this film. Sure, yeah. It's interesting as well, because Adam McKay, he is a producer or an executive producer on Succession. Yes, he directed the first episode as well. And it it feels like this, from what you're saying, this feels a long way from the, the kind of subtlety and sophistication of Succession, where there's a different kind of sensitivity, maybe. There you go. Don't look up. Maybe something to cheer us all up on Christmas Eve, the night before one of the most exciting days of the year, um, a film about our death. Lovely. In selected cinemas now, Netflix from Christmas Eve, 
at 8am. So coming up, we have a review of Encanto and the amazing Mr. Blunden. But first, let's get into my interview with the man behind all of the lyrics of the new Disney film Encanto, which is in cinemas now and available on Disney Plus from Christmas Eve. A much more cheerful Christmassy encounter. So Encanto is a Disney film about a girl who is the only non-magical being in her otherwise extraordinary family. This girl is voiced by Stephanie Beatrice from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. She plays Rosa in that, one of my favourite characters. John Leguizmo is also in there as this mystical enigma, Tio Bruno. It's all set in a village in Colombia and essentially it's about the pressures of family life. So he's a director, writer and producer. You'll know him as the creator of Hamilton and In the Heights. It's Lin-Manuel Miranda and you'll hear the interview after this clip from the film. Mirabel, delivery. I gave you the special since you're the only Madrigal kid with no gift. I call it the not special special since uh, you have no gift. Uh, thanks. Or no gift. I am just as special as the rest of my family. Who wants more pink? All right, guys, where do I drop the wagon? Maybe your gift is being in denial. That was a clip from Encanto, and joining us to talk about the film is songwriter extraordinaire Lin Manuel Miranda. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, I know that you and the other filmmakers went on a trip to Colombia. So what inspirations did you glean from that that you just would not have been able to get from sitting at your desk writing the songs to Encanto? Oh, man. I, you know, I think that all I knew about Colombian music before I, I signed on to this project was its incredible diversity. I knew about the salsa music of Joe Arroyo, who's a legend in the salsa world. I knew about Carlos Vives, of course, and his incredible cumbias and vallenatos. Um, he's a global figure in Latin music. And I knew about like the 90s rock music I love from Shakira. Um, and that's like three totally different genres. Um, and they're all coming from the same country. So um, to go there and, and you know, go not only to very large cities like Cartagena and Bogota, but really kind of quiet rural towns was to get a glimpse of that diversity. Um, and the, the total range of the musical crossroads that is uh, Colombia, because we sort of stopped and listened to music at every point in our in our journey. And so the, the mandate really was like, how how many different styles can I write in and still be reflecting uh, Colombia kind of every step of the way? I've, I mean, I've watched Encanto for the first time about a month ago and have just had the song stuck in my head ever since. I listen to it pretty much every day. Um, so my personal favourite, which I, I just is think is phenomenal, is Surface Pressure. It is so relatable. It kind of made me cry, but also... Are you an older sibling? I'm a young, I'm the youngest. So tell me about that. Tell me about your personal journey to finding, you know, how many pressures people can relate to in their families. Well, <laughs> that was I, amazing. I think it will shock no one uh, to let you know that I wrote that song at the peak of our pandemic <laughs> and, and yes. the pressures that came with that. And, you know, the pressures of keeping your family safe, which is literally what Luisa is directly writing about. So that was a way in for me. And also I'm, I'm, I'm the youngest sibling as well. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I have an older sister who I know got a worse deal than I did when you're the baby of the family and you're a boy, um, right. you get away with more. Mm-hmm. And um, so in a lot of ways, the song is also kind of a love letter slash apology to my older sister who, you know, I know faced uh, burdens and parental pressures that I just didn't, I, I faced it to much less of a degree because they're paying less attention on the subsequent yeah. siblings. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and I know she felt those burdens keenly. And one of the one of the fun joys, I, I um, the New York premiere of the movie, my sister was my date, and I sat next to her and watched. And she was there with her kids, my nephews. Um, and I turned to her, I turned to her kids, and said, "So Luisa is your mom?" And they were like, "No, she's not. Our mom's <laughs> abuela." She is strict and she is trying to control our life. Um, and what's great, again, like one of the great things that I'm, I'm so proud of with this movie is that it, 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 I think it does for us what Inside Out did so brilliantly for mm-hmm. Pixar, which was like it gives us a vocabulary to talk about our families um, through these characters we've just gone on a journey with. I was so brilliant again about the film is that there is no bad guy there is no ultimate villain the the kind of the bad guy is is kind of pressure and responsibility which yeah is... and holding on too tight and trying to freeze trying to put your family in roles when they've maybe evolved past those roles or they are mm-hmm. more than the, the 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 corners you're painting them in which we're all guilty of at some point or another with yeah. our own families like the great work of our lives is continuing to grow and adapt and, and and change as 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 you grow up so when you don't have that sort of so much of an antagonist I think Abuela obviously kind of plays a little element of that role but how do you sort of have that peak song there is so much there's so often a villainous song in Disney so how did you kind of change the tempo and make sure that there were still these incredible kind of through connections without that's that interesting you're it's true there's no um vill- there and i did write a villain song for moana even though he's sort of a minor villain tamatoa uh was 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 not like a a really terrifying villain it's hard to be terrifying when you're jemaine clement and you're so damn lovable um <laughs> but the um you know i i think that the the song that kind of goes in that slot uh is a song i pitched was we don't talk about bruno uh mm. which was a I pitched a gossip number because in any large family, you're going to have the stories you can tell at dinner and the stories you can't say in front of abuela or mom or dad or, um, and then also I think I related as, as the youngest in my family, you know, you come into a bunch of history that happened before you were born and you go, wait, why is it mom talking to that sister? Oh, it was two Christmases ago. I'll tell you, um, after everyone's gone to bed, um, you know, like we all have our versions of those family stories. Um, and so to be able to use the character that is absent Bruno as Mm -hmm. a jumping off point to hear from other characters that wouldn't ordinarily get a solo, um, was a really exciting prospect. Absolutely. Why do you think that you and Disney and Pixar and animation in general, actually, of course, you've had Vivo out as well. Why are you such a perfect fit for animation when it comes to your sensibilities? Thank you for saying that, first of all. And and second of all, I fell in love with musical storytelling via animated films. Mm. You know, we didn't have money to go see Broadway shows like Little Mermaid's the thing that like blew my mind when I was nine years old. Um, And I was lucky enough to be a kid slash teenager during the second golden age of Disney, like from, you know, 
Little Mermaid when I was nine years old through like Lion King in 1994. Mm-hmm. And I'm in eighth grade and like leaving school early to go see it on Friday. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing it with Claire Newman and Dane Martinez on a half day. Um, like, you know, that was like, it was very it's really um, imprinted in your brain. I have a real affection for what musical storytelling can do. I really pride myself on raising my hand and being like, a song can do that. Those three scenes, <laughs> let me cannibalize your scene and turn it into a song. Um, I, I really enjoyed that collaborative part of the process. Tell us also about Stephanie Beatrice, because I know that you were playing Amy's brother, but did you get to meet Rosa when you were on the set of Brooklyn Nine-Nine? So I met, I met Steph when I was 23, 24 years old. Um, right. We, um, she was doing theater in New York and my, my, my co-writer on Heights, Kiara, she starred in one of Kiara's very early plays uh, in New York. Off, 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 off. Um, <laughs> and it's the great cosmic joke that the world met her with her voice pitched two octaves down yeah. and in a monotone, because I know how incredibly expressive and musical her voice is. She sounds yeah, because- like a Disney character when she's, talking normally. (laughs) (laughs) I think her Instagram made everyone realize, oh, oh, wait. And then she was in the Heights. Yeah, no, you are acting on that show. (laughs) (laughs) And then you put her in in the Heights and then you realize just how vocal, like how beautiful her voice is. You know, how did it work with her coming from working with you on that to starring in Encanto? Well, I think what was so exciting was that we both grew up loving Disney musicals. So we would be literally doing a vocal session the way I'm talking to you right now. But on my phone, I'm like, you are a Disney, you're a Disney hero. You're, do you believe that? Like texting. And then she's just texting me back crying emojis while she's trying to do uh, takes. Um, so, you know, we were we were very much in pinch me mode getting to work on this together. And I would give her a heads up when I was like, OK, reprise incoming, like, <laughs> you know, go work with your coach because it's yeah. a little, you know, or like I remember texting her once like, you sang the hell out of it and I need to put it like a step higher so we can go to that Disney soaring place. So like prepare for that. Um, (laughs) But it was, it's wonderful. Like it it was also wonderful because I knew, I know her voice so well. Um, Mm. And, and to be, it's always helpful as a songwriter to know the voice you're, you're writing to just, just like it does have to work for you. Yeah. Um, This is obviously going out on Christmas Eve on Disney Plus. So it's going to sort of become a part of people's family traditions, I think, to now watch this on Christmas Eve. I hope so. Why wouldn't it? What are your sort of. We could be part of the legacy of Die Hard and Home Alone. That'd be (laughs) amazing. What are your what are your Christmas films TV that you have to watch every single year without fail? We watch the Peanuts Christmas special. Uh, Christmas time is here. Um, we, uh, it's a wonderful life. Um, uh-huh. they actually, they do a regular screening of that in the, um, United Palace Theater on 175th street, not, not uh-huh. far from where I live. So I like to go to that. Um, we, de- when we decorate the tree, we play, uh, Willie Colon, uh, cause Willie Colon and, uh, and, uh, Hector Lavoe came out with a series of like Puerto Rican themed uh, songs in the 70s that is just like the sound of my childhood. Perfect. And Encanto is going to fit right into that canon. Lin-Manuel Miranda, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Cheers. So how wonderful to meet Lin-Manuel Miranda. But it, what's, the, what's the film like? I honestly really loved it i've have have i seen it twice or three times now it just something really resonated with me and it you know 
I cried a lot when I saw this the first time because it was just something about, I think after this year especially, the pressures of either not seeing your family. For some people, they might have had to move in with their families. So it's become like this weird kind of pressure cooker of emotions, I think, when it comes to families. Um, so this kind of really struck a chord with me. And I, I just think the lyrics especially was so witty and empathetic. And it's really where Lin-Manuel's strengths lie, because we have seen him direct with Tick, Tick, Boom. Neither Jane or I, neither of us really bought into that film on Netflix. You know, I think there are certain aspects of Lin-Manuel's career where he has been given certain things to do because of his incredible reputation. And for me, it hasn't always worked. I think this works so brilliantly, as it did with Moana as well. I found this so joyful and fun and beautiful as well to watch. And, you know, seeing a different culture on screen, it's so nice not to necessarily have like US culture, to have Colombian culture, which is something that I've not yet experienced in a children's movie. It was really gorgeous. So, yeah, big thumbs up to Encanto. That's great. Because there is that that thing sometimes with big Disney animated movies. You know, they've been years, sometimes mm-hmm. decades in the making. Every moment, every scene is polished. It's all absolutely zingy and every beat is just so... And it can kind of become overwhelming sometimes when the spirit of it isn't quite right. Uh, if there isn't a beating heart yes. in the middle of it. And it sounds, from what you're saying, as though there is a beating heart in this and its, and its heart is is in the right place. It really is. And as we talked about, there's no villain. And, you know, that you kind of think that could go either way for a Disney film. The villains are so important. I did a, even did a video essay for the BBC about the villains of Disney. Like that, They are a huge thing for me to just have this, you know, catharsis, I suppose, at the end of any movie like that. The fact that there isn't is really unusual. And they just do it in such an interesting, clever way that you almost don't even notice. Um so yeah, loads, loads to love. And I think really nice for all kind of different generations as well. It's not like a really young children's film that you have to sit through as an adult. I think you will love it. One thing that struck me was I saw Rose Matafeo had, had tweeted about it. It does feel as though the the heroine of this, just, she just has a lot of Rose Matafeo with, except with spectacles. And I wondered whether you can sort of, whether she can sort of make a claim on Disney for that, that they've nicked her kind of shtick. Who, by the way, is incredible in Starstruck, which is on BBC iPlayer. A great show. And for people who don't know, she's a New Zealand comedian. You may have seen her on, or well, she's done Netflix stand-up specials, hasn't she? She's also been on Taskmaster. She's wonderful. She's extraordinary. But the fact that this Disney character, and who is not a princess, by the way, this Disney ordinary, in inverted commas, girl, looks like a woman that we know, I think is literally the point. The fact that she is an every woman. You recognise yourself in her. So that is on Christmas Eve on Disney+. Plus. I recommend you watch it. Do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Radio Times. Or if you want to use a good old-fashioned email, it's podcast at radiotimes.com. Highlighter pens at the ready. The Radio Times Christmas issue is here, including a 14-day guide bursting with festive features and reviews and recommendations of the very best TV, streaming, film and radio this Christmas. The star-studded double edition includes interviews with Julie Walters, David Tennant, Billy Connolly, Lin-Manuel Miranda, the stars of Strictly and Christmas dinner tips from TV's finest chefs. It wouldn't be Christmas without Radio Times. On sale now.
Now, next up, we have The Amazing Mr. Blunden, which is on Sky Max on Christmas Eve at 7pm. So let's hear from that first. Do you think you would be afraid if you saw a ghost? <laughs> no. I guess it would depend on what sort of ghost it would be. These ghosts might appear to you, well, very much like ordinary people, children perhaps of your own age or even an old man like myself. Oh, that would be okay. <laughs> we wouldn't be scared of anything like that. Don't know. Spooky kids are the worst. Did you see that movie? Sometimes ghosts are people who come back seeking help. They cannot rest from the knowledge of the harm they have done. So this is based on the 1970s TV film about a down-on-their-luck family who get an almost-too-good-to-be-true offer to be the caretakers for this old, run-down house. They meet two children there who desperately need help in their own time, which is 200 years before. Mark Gatiss loves a ghost story. Tell us what he's done with this one. Well, he's he's done a nice job. I was thinking how I wouldn't want to be stuck behind... Mark Gatiss in a traffic jam or something. He doesn't hurry things. I think if my my kids are older now, but if they were younger and I put them in front of this, I think they might start to get a little bit restless early on. But it does draw you in as it goes on. I think part of the issue, it's actually quite a fiddly story. I mean, we can you've sort of summarised it there. But yes, the family get to go and caretake this this shambling sort of run down mansion house there they come across some ghosts who are trying to get them who tell them that there's a potion you can make from herbs that will let you time travel it's hard to describe without making it sound terribly complicated you get drawn along with that and really underneath it there's a nice quite kind of wholesome story about righting wrongs and and regret and so on. And Simon Callow's great. And there's people like uh, Tamsin Greggs in it, a uh, wonderful, wonderful actor. Mark Gatiss appears himself as this very grotesque figure. There's a lot of quite grotesque stuff in it. It's quite heavy at times. I mean, it's... Lots of bad teeth. Lots of bad teeth. <laughs> uh, there are axes involved and and house fires and so on. I mean, it may be that it's the kind of thing that younger children might get the odd hangover, uh, the odd hangover, the odd nightmare from. It is genuinely frightening, isn't it? Because I think nowadays people are too afraid to scare children. And yet, you know, I grew up on things like Jumanji, which mm. was absolutely terrifying. And this definitely feels like it's trying to replace those sorts of horror moments because it's genuinely, I think children will be frightened, as you say. Yes. And I think if you love horror and ghost stories and so on, then there is definitely a part that a role that that mm. plays, that being terrified, being scared, is an important thing to go through in an environment that you know is actually safe. And kids, I think you're right, do need to do that. They need to feel mm. scared, but no, but actually it's okay. And Gatiss, obviously, uh, we know, is a huge uh, believer in ghost stories. And weirdly, on the same night, on Christmas Eve, he's got another ghost story uh, on BBC Two, which is one of his M.R. James adaptations uh, called The Mezzotint, uh, which is a very different creature to this and obviously mm. is very much aimed at much more grown-up uh, audience. But it's also very good uh, in, a, in a very different way. It's got Rory Kinnear as this 
um, kind of fusty old 1920s uh, school teacher who somebody sends him a picture uh, and then the picture seems to take on a life of its own. And that was done for, I imagine, a fraction of the budget of The Amazing Mr Plunder. I think they shot the entire thing in uh, uh, mezzotint in four days or something ridiculous. Yes. Whereas The Amazing Mr Plunder, it's Sky, it's got some money behind it, it's got some special effects, it's got a great cast and it does take you along with this quite quite a nice old-fashioned kids' adventure. So big thumbs up then from the sounds of it for the amazing Mr Blunden. I'd say one one thumb thumb up. Not every child will have the, the patience to stick it out. But Simon Callow is excellent as the eponymous Mr Blunden. So the amazing Mr Blunden is on Skymax on Christmas Eve at 7pm. Finally then, I got to interview David Tennant as he stars in Around the World in 80 Days, which is on BBC One, starting with a double episode on Boxing Day at 5.50. So we're going to hear my interview with David Tennant after this clip from the new series. I don't need to tell you what it's about, you know. Phileas Fogg. Fogg. The adventurer. Well, yes, I suppose. So this must be... My companions, Abigail Fix, journalist... I'm here to cover your progress for the Daily Telegraph. What? No. Oh, no. And pass for two. Someone tried to kill you. No. I'm going to circumnavigate the globe in 80 days. (laughs) Some are born to adventure, and others, frankly, (coughs) are not. David Tennant, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Very pleased to be here. Fetching Christmas jumper. I'm also wearing one with lots of sparkles. Oh, you are. Well done. Yes, good. (laughs) Doing very well. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Yeah. So we are here to talk about um, Around the World in 80 Days, which is incredibly exciting. And also, what a feat as well. This is, what is it, eight episodes? It's kind of, it's going to be on our TVs across two months. So this was written in the late 1800s. How has Ashley Farrow updated Jules Verne to make this almost sort of like palatable for a 21st century audience? There are a lot of changes. Well, obviously it's not, yes, it's not a, it's not a story that you can, update to have in the modern day obviously because nowadays it would take us about a day and a half to get around the world so it has to be set in its time Uh, but inevitably when you retell a story things like sexual politics racial politics we now have a different perspective on that and I think what Ashley does very cleverly and appropriately is feed that in to he retells this story. The master-servant relationship is precarious anyway, especially when the master is white and the servant is black. So how does the show turn that on its head? Well, because unlike in the original novel, where Phileas is a rather unknowable, rather um, enigmatic, inscrutable character, this Phileas Fogg is a sort of a rash of anxieties (laughs) and insecurities. So he inevitably Passepartout is the hero of this story. You know, without Passepartout, he would be lost before he leaves uh, Dover. I think that subverts that Mm -hmm. dynamic initially. That's the thing. Phileas believes that he's in charge and he clearly isn't. Uh, (laughs) You know, uh, he's he's clearly being led around the world by two much more capable individuals than he is. Uh, And it gives you a chance to tell some stories that, as you see, Ibrahim who plays Passepartout is black and that's when a black man goes to certain places in the world in the late 19th century, that will not be met without a raising of eyebrows. Mm-hmm. And I think what Ashley, in the way he writes the story, is he doesn't shy away from that. So that's part of the story. And that's part of 
Fogg's sort of journey of discovery is realising that, you know, he's led this very cosseted, very privileged, very entitled life, which really means he doesn't understand what it is to walk in anyone else's shoes. Mm. And, and he gets to witness that at first hand. And I think that's an important part of the story we tell. It was lovely to see Fix move from a male inspector to a female journalist, yes. um, Abigail. Yes. And that, yes. so that lends a kind of a whole new angle in terms of sexual tensions between her and Passapartout, um, which yeah. I'm very excited to see how that develops. But also right. just in terms of seeing a Victorian woman kind of standing up against her father yes. and the kind of box that she's supposed to be placed yes, in. Yes, again, I think an important element, if you're telling the story now, we, we want to know what it would be to be a woman in that time as well. You know, you want to understand what it would be like to be Abigail Fix, mm. trying to sort of make a name for herself in a world that really doesn't understand why she should want to, <laughs> uh, let alone help her to do it. Yes. Um, and I think that's that's part of what I think makes this story worth telling now. It's an incredibly fun trio, the three of you, Leone, yeah. Benesh and Ibrahim Koma. So yeah. tell us about that your kind of working relationship and kind of building up the bond over these however many years it's now sort of taken you to, to make this. Well, quite, yes. I mean, we didn't know each other at all, which is, uh, before we started, which kind of suits the trio, really. The whole sort of class structure that Fogg is very much a... a, a a product of they become much more intimate as they go on this extraordinary journey together inevitably that would be mirrored in the relationship Abraham and Leone and I didn't know each other at all and we went on this extraordinary journey not just making this you know massive show that that felt every day felt like a sort of huge production number in all the extraordinary places we got to film but then there was also this big shutdown in the middle of it and none of us knew what was going to happen next and we were all whatsapping each other and going are we what does it feel like what does it feel like in France what does it feel like in Germany are we ever going to film this again I think there's a sense of between the three of us as characters and as individual actors of having gone through a journey an experience mm. uh, 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 there are there are battle wounds which I think uh, <laughs> we can share I'm glad to hear you talking about actually travelling around the world because I was like am I being really like really naive was this all done on a soundstage you actually got to travel for some of this I mean a bit we didn't go around the world we went we, we basically had two locations we had Romania <laughs> okay and we had South Africa oh so, wow yeah we're in Bucharest and we're in Cape Town we never travelled more than an hour outside either mm-hmm. of those cities I don't think obviously they were chosen for very specific reasons there are standing sets for example in Romania there's do you remember the movie Cold Mountain? Yes, with Nicole Judy Kidman. Law and Nicole Kidman. Yeah, yeah there's a, the, the set for Cold Mountain still exists on a Romanian soundstage. Oh, wow. So I'm probably I'm probably saying too much. But episode <laughs> seven, we got to film in this fantastically realised Wild West village because it's just sitting oh, there wow. in in Romania. We used some of the Troy sets that are still standing outside Cape Town. Um, transformed into an Indian village for episode four. Uh, there are some wonderful old turn of the last century New York standing sets again mm-hmm. in Romania and so a lot of the architecture in Bucharest is sort of Soviet era buildings which double very beautifully for Paris and for London of the late 1800s we used all the resources that those two locations had mm-hmm. to offer to take us around the entire world that is incredibly impressive and I suppose even more so in that sense then the production design must have been so vital for not only for us the audience but for you getting into character well absolutely you have to feel like you're travelling don't you you have to feel like each new location is as different to the last mm. as it as it would have been for 
Phileas Fogg, uh, you know, it had to feel as as alien, as foreign, as as new and frankly terrifying uh, to this sort of innocent abroad, this fish out of water. It had to feel like these had to be completely realised worlds. Basically, South Africa's the hot places mm-hmm. and Romania was the cold right. places. That's pretty much how it divides up. Yeah. Because, of course, there's the Atlantis dunes just out, outside Cape Town, which is often used for because of the relatively accessible desert. Mm. So that's where that's where we rode on camels. And uh, it was a remarkable feat by our art department, really, to, to realise all these different places. I think I read somewhere that Ibrahim said that the smells were even different, depending on where you were based or where you were Well, there was one fish market <laughs> that where, where by day two we realised a lot of the fish weren't made of plastic. Oh, my goodness. And we were there... For quite a while. Was that in the hot or the cold place? In the heat of South Africa (laughs) as the fish started to rot around us. That wasn't entirely ideal. Um, You just mentioned riding camels. I read that they get um, Mm. separation anxiety. Is that true? Camels are, it turns out, are not the calmest creatures because they they, they do give the sense of zen about them, Mm. don't you? As you see them plodding over the desert, it feels like they're very steady, uh, very, very at ease with themselves. But it seems that we had the only camels who'd never been introduced to sand before. (laughs) I don't know where... In Cape Town, they were living. But as they got brought onto the Atlantis dunes, they freaked out. <laughs> they were beside themselves. Because I suppose if, you, if you've if you never walked on sand before and you're a big, hefty animal I and guess. suddenly your feet start sinking oh, yeah. in the ground, it, it's not going to be particularly pleasing. <laughs> Mine wasn't too bad. Ibrahim had a terrible... I mean, Ibrahim landed in the sand a couple of times. His, because when a camel does not want you on its back... You are no longer on its back. Right. You know, these are powerful creatures. <laughs> so we got a little bit hairy at times. So the David Niven version of Around the World in 80 Days famously had a lot of very big Hollywood cameos. This feels kind of right. much more multicultural with stars from around the yeah. world. So who's joining mm. you on your journey? For a British audience, you'd certainly recognise Richard Wilson, mm-hmm. who has a delicious little cameo as the uh, as the butler who... It turns out isn't going to make it around the world because he's a little bit long in the tooth, which is why Passport Two comes into the picture. Because I'm slow, I'm gently reminded by Jason Watkins, who's also in this. I'm gently reminded that perhaps Grayson isn't ready to go around the world in eighty days, having not left the house in fifteen years. We have Rich Wilson, we have Jason Watkins, we have Lindsay Duncan turning up in episode three. And this is a, a, a European co-production so there are French actors that a French uh, audience will recognise mm-hmm. there are Italian actors that an Italian uh, audience will recognise and that's that's been, that was part of the joy of it actually just sort of yes there are people will speak English when they speak to Phileas Fogg because of course he's a Brit and he doesn't speak anything else but it's important that you see the Italians speaking Italians and the the, the French people speaking French and and that carries on as we go around the world you've sort of done so much over the years you've done almost like a bit of everything was there anything that you experienced on this that you hadn't done before that you really enjoyed doing the scale of the production kept taking us all a bit by surprise there's a bit where we get cast away in a in a lifeboat at one stage and we turned up in this amazing sort of big green screen diorama with a boat that was on all these kind of pistons so we could get moved around in space and then of course they add everything else later Mm. Uh, and that's for one 
I have to say one very exciting sequence at the start of episode six, but things like that, you just, that that was a, a constant delight, I have to say. Um, this has already been picked up for series two. I mean, that's... Well, to be fair, that's been a little over-reported, okay. may I say. May I put the record slightly sure. straight here? I think there's an investigation going on as to whether that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. But yes, I read, but I think it was Leone said, sent me a text going, We've been greenlit, apparently, <laughs> which was news to everyone on the production. Let me tell you, maybe that's maybe maybe that can work out. Maybe that would be lovely. But I, I don't. It's not currently something that's that's on the books, as it were. Mm-hmm. But hey, listen, it, it would be it would be a lovely thing if we got to do it. Something that definitely is returning, though, is Good Omen series two because I can see your your brilliant red hair, your floppy. <laughs> Red hair right now. Um, I've got the hair. That, I mean, it has such an immense cult following, Good Omens. Why do you think it yeah. resonates with its fans so much? I think that it's a novel that has existed uh, in the hearts and minds of a great many people since it came out. And I, I think because we have Neil Gaiman as our showrunner writing the script, and he was, you know, half of it was him and himself and Terry Pratchett. Mm who wrote it originally, and Neil is writing it very much as a, almost as a love letter to Terry, who he, you know, has such, uh, who I think he sees as something of a mentor uh, to himself. So the whole thing is 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 produced with such love and affection and loyalty to the source material from all of us involved, um, but with Neil's blessing every step of the way. So I, I, I think it, it feels like we were accepted by the, by the, the the legions of fans that Good Omens already had, yeah. and perhaps have you know developed some some new fans along the way. I've just been watching Michael Sheen actually in Last Train to Christmas. Oh yes, <laughs> it's out now, isn't it? It's is out now. He has a great mullet. You too, we with your cannot incredible wait. hairstyles. Um, and you know, Christmas TV is so important. It's so kind yeah. of part of our annual traditions. What yeah. are your um, Christmas TV traditions? Well, see, one of the things that I'm particularly pleased about with 80 Days, the fact that it's on Unboxing Day and that it is this kind of cross-generational family mm. treat. It is genuinely one of those things where everyone can hopefully get excited about as a family and, and it works for everyone in the family. That was one of the things I found hardest to surrender when I did Doctor Who all those years ago, being part of that kind of Christmas television mm-hmm. schedule right at the centre of it feeling like you were a moment where families could come together and being the kind of focus of that was was always something that I absolutely adored so the fact that uh, 80 Days is is in a similar territory is something yeah. that I'm particularly pleased about So what do you end up watching every single year? Elf has become mm-hmm. a big uh, a re- returner in our house The Grinch was on yesterday That was that was working for at least three of the children. It's difficult we, because we've got a lot of different ages. Yeah. It's finding one thing that ticks all the boxes is quite tricky. I have to say, Doctor Who is still a big thing in our house. Mm-hmm. That's still a, a family moment uh, that we all. That yes, probably not the very youngest, but there's certain, there's always at least four of us sitting down to that every time. So <laughs> that will be the case again on New Year's Day. Good, uh, David Tennant. Thank you so much for joining us on the Radio Times podcast. It's been lovely to talk Great to you. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was so lovely to talk to David Tennant. And, you know, this is a lot of fun. I was particularly enamoured with Ibrahim Koma as Passepartout, um, who is just, he gets so many brilliant lines in this. And I had a lot of fun just sitting on my sofa, exploring the world with this unlikely trio. But what did you think, David? 
the, th- the thing you need to know about this is that it's this co-production between about 10 different international broadcasters from Germany and Belgium and South Africa and Canada and Australia and God knows where. It's one of those things where it feels to me a little as though there was quite a good script to start with and then every single executive at every single uh, broadcaster gave gave their notes to uh, Ashley Farrow, the writer, and messed around with it. And it's ended up a bit of a mess. <laughs> at one point in an early scene, they're sitting around... The characters are sitting around in the in the Reform Club in 1870s London and they order Eaton Mess. And that feels a bit too on the nose because it does feel like a right old pudding at times, this. I have to say it does get better. I've watched the first three or four now and it does get better, but it does start quite badly. Part of the problem is that the point of David Tennant's Phileas Fogg is that he's not an adventurer at all. He's a bit of a kind of layabout uh, for reasons that I think will emerge. I think he's got some trauma in his past. He's lost the love of his life or something. And it, it's only because somebody at his club kind of dares him to take on this challenge of going around the world and bets him that he can't do it that he decides to attempt it and prove them wrong. But he's not really up to the job. At least that's the sort of theme early on. And he relies on Passepartout, his valet, who actually isn't even a valet, who's just sort of blagged his way into that role, and his uh, plucky young journalist companion, Abigail Fortescue. And between them, they manage to muddle through. And actually, as it goes along, Phileas starts to find it in himself. He sort of overcomes his own self-doubt, which is a nice story. But we don't really get that to start with. And what we want is a sense of, OK, what, who's this story about and, and why do we care? And it takes a while to get there because the first their first stop is Paris where um, the Paris Commune uprising is going on. They're pitched right into the middle of that. It's, suddenly, we're, we're, Phyllis becomes almost kind of marginalised because that, that story takes over. I think it's one of those things... Don't judge it entirely on the first episode or even perhaps the second yes. episode because by the third episode, things start to pick up. And I think what Ashley Farrow, the writer, has done quite cleverly, he parachutes in bits of history that appeal to him. So in the third episode, we get Lindsay Duncan playing this Victorian adventurous Jane Digby, who's a real-life figure and mm. who has something to say. It brings a sort of uh, a feminist angle to things. The Paris Commune, I don't think that's in the uh, that's in the original book. Um, but he's found a way of, use, of doing little sort of historical fables along the way, which I think, as it builds, could become quite effective. And also it is. It's not really... I mean, it's it's like the Amazing Mr. Bond. It's aimed at kids. It's aimed at slightly older kids, maybe, and it's something that parents can watch with the kids. Um, but it's not it's not the finest work, I would say, that David Tennant has ever done. That's not a reason to to give it a miss, but equally, don't get your hopes up too high. I think having been rather spoiled with his performance in Doctor Who, this feels like it is trying to sort of dovetail with his kind of love of exploration and being the you know the one who turns up in all of these weird situations and different worlds and it is it is quite similar yes but i think the the difficulty is that we're used to him you know when he played doctor who he was very much in charge he was there he turned up he would fix things he's kind of a superhero really um and mm. in this the nature of the part is that he's very passive um and unsure of himself, which is an interesting kind of dynamic to explore. It's just that for a rollicking Victorian adventurer, uh, it's not quite what we're expecting and we need a bit more 
kind of set up with that so that we care about him as the main protagonist. Yes, I do know exactly what you mean. And I think you're right about the first episode. I really loved the second episode where um, he has to, we maybe start to see a bit more of his brain working and he becomes less of this Mm. hapless fool and finally does something genuinely quite heroic. And so it feels like it becomes, starts to become a little bit more earned, the fact that he is the kind of this... Incredible, supposed to be this incredible explorer. But what I really loved was he has a moment in this carriage with a child and they actually talk about Jules Verne. So it's kind of, it's quite meta in a way. Um, but he he kind of gets this wisdom and this... Yes. Um, this because he's seen by this little boy as a hero and, a, and an adventurer. He sort of is imbued with that, I don't know, that sort of sense of excitement about maybe he could really do this. You know, this isn't his child, but it's almost like a sort of father-son thing that I can imagine a lot of children look up to their fathers in that way. And it's quite a nice reminder that, you know, be what your children think you are sort of thing. I thought that was really sweet. And it does feel really cinematic (laughs) in some respects because we are exploring the world. We've had two years perhaps of not really being able to leave the country and suddenly we're in hot air balloons, we're in... We're on these incredible trains going through wondrous places. And from that perspective, it just felt really joyful. And then you have Hans Zimmer doing the theme, which just like lends this incredible gravitas to absolutely everything that goes on. Yes, no, it's good, it's good music, isn't it? And also, I think there's a moment, uh, this isn't a spot, but there's a moment at the end of episode two where it's a character we've just met sitting in a desert city somewhere just gets a... Uh, mm. a, a telegram from London saying, kill Fog. Yeah. And instantly there, I mean, he's clearly a shifty character and suddenly we think, ah, okay. And actually that instantly makes it more interesting. And at that point you think, okay, I'm on board with this. So perhaps, you know, not not the most beloved programme necessarily, but I think one, as you say, for maybe young adults to enjoy around the world in 80 days on BBC One, starting with a double episode on Boxing Day at 5.50. So now it's time for what we watched. And David, if you don't know, this is the quiz where you have to try and guess the year from the clues that I'm about to give you. So how good at quizzes are you? Well, I thought I was all right, but I'm dreading this. I, I've listened to this myself on the podcast and I'm, I'm very bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm an open girl, really. Uh, this, is, this, is, this probably won't go well. All right, here we go then. Your first clue is Shane Ward won the second series of X Factor in this year. Here's a clip of the moment it happened. Tonight, 10.8 million people have voted and I'm getting the percentages now. There is just 1.2% between Andy and Shane. So the waiting's over. This is it. The winner of the X Factor is... My goodness, one point something percent. That's wild. The weird thing is I can remember watching that at the time. I can remember when that happened because uh, I quite liked Shane. I think he was about the last... <laughs> Did you vote? Uh, no, I, wouldn't, I, don't think, I don't think I would have voted. <laughs> but I can't for the life of me think whether whether X Factor began in the two in the late 2000s or the early 2010s. And I could be wrong on both fronts anyway. So I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need some more clues. I feel it's there or thereabouts. 
Okay, we have some more, don't worry. BBC One aired the network premiere of Love Actually two years after the film was released in cinemas. Here's a clip where Rowan Atkinson is selling Alan Rickman a necklace. Looking for anything in particular, sir? Yes, um, that necklace there, how much is it? It's £270. Um, all right, uh, I'll have it. Lovely. Would you like it gift-wrapped? Uh, yes, all right. Lovely. Let me just pop it in the box. There. Look, could we be quite quick? Certainly, sir. Ready in the flashiest of flashes. Oh, it's so nice to hear. It's so nice to hear Anne Rickman's voice again as well. What a voice he had. Are you getting getting any closer to the year, or do you need one more one more example? That makes me think sooner rather than later. That makes me think 2000s rather than 2010s. Uh, I'm thinking because Love Actually feels like a long time ago, uh, even yeah, though this is two years later when they showed it on TV. So I'm homing in on mid to late noughties. Okay, one more clip. So a special edition of Question Time was aired in this year featuring David Cameron and David Davis, who at the time were the two candidates in the forthcoming Conservative Party leadership election. Here is a clip from that Question Time. Our first question is from Carly Snay, please. In the contest for leadership, is youth or experience most important? Mm. <laughs> I don't know who to start with on that one. <laughs> David Davis. What a pointed question. Yeah. Well, my view is obviously that experience is incredibly important. Uh, I actually think that uh, I've got a very talented challenger here. But uh, we've both got, I hope, lots of talent to bring to this, uh, to this contest and what comes after the general election, but also a lot of experience in my case. Instilling real confidence there. So, you, I'm going to give you one more for luck because you're still looking slightly... Well, that's this is more than I would slightly. do for Jane, by the way. <laughs> this is more than I would do for Jane. In December of this year, Brokeback Mountain came out, of course, starring the incredible Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal. Did you go and see that at the cinema? Can you remember? I did, and I remember that vividly as well. But it doesn't, I mean, to me, in my head, this is the trouble with getting older, that could have happened at any time between about 1995 <laughs> and 2015. It's not either of those years. <laughs> so it really doesn't help. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say 2008. It's 2005. I'm ah. so sorry. It was right in the middle of the 2000s. Apologies. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, I don't that. feel too bad. Three years out, I would have taken that at the start, as football managers say. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, Jane had a decade out the other day, so don't worry about it. <laughs> it's a cruel game. <laughs> if this has evoked memories of your own, the things that you were watching, what you were doing at that time, did you go and see Brokeback Mountain and cry with everyone else? If you've got any funny stories, then please email the show. It's podcast at radiotimes.com or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Radio Times. So now, before we go, we're going to do a very quick roundup of our favourite three shows of 2021. Rihanna, what leaps to the top of your mind at this point? There are a couple of 
you know, almosts, which are In My Skin Series 2 and It's a Sin from Rossity Davis. Both incredible programmes, mm. both heartbreaking in their own ways. But the ones that really kind of stood out for me are We Are Lady Parts, um, which was just such a fantastic show on Channel 4 about these Muslim girls who start like a sort of punk rock band. And it's just incredibly entertaining. It made me laugh so much. And it gave us a perspective that we just haven't seen before. You know, that makes it sound worthy. This is so irreverent, actually, and and brilliant and joyful. Yes. So it's written and created by Nida Manzor, and she's just somebody that you know you're going to keep an eye on. You're going to want to watch everything that she makes. We Are Lady Parts. I can't recommend it enough. My next one is... The White Lotus. It is absolutely wild, this programme. It's got so many little weird ups and downs. It's full of really quite despicable characters. Um, and at the heart of it is this basil, faulty type character played by Murray Bartlett, who is trying to keep everything together in this luxury hotel and failing rather miserably. This, again, was just explosive for so many reasons. It got everyone talking. It was one of those water cooler moment TV shows, which, you know, again, they don't roll around very often either. And again, it was nice to be in like this paradise setting, but to have all of these dreadful things happen and go wrong. And there were just so many wonderful performances for like Connie Britton, for example, um, you think is going to be one kind of person, turns out to be something different. Everything was just kind of trying to pull the rug out from beneath you. And it just did such a good job of it. The White Lotus. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful show. Extraordinary. Now, I feel like we'll probably cross over on this one, particularly Mayor of Easttown. Uh, this Kate Winslet just blew everybody away with that accent, yeah. with that that story, with these heartbreaking performances of this family who are struggling to, you know, deal with their own traumas. And then this dreadful thing happens in the centre of their very small town. And the ripple effect, the fallout from that, the devastation, again, everyone, everyone wanted to just discuss this all the time, Mayor of Easttown. It was one of those things, one of those beautiful moments where you sit down to something, it didn't have an enormous amount of hype behind it, um, but it reminded me a bit of the very first time I remember sitting down to watch Succession that nobody was talking mm. about. Uh, but watching Mayor of Easttown, you suddenly thought, this is an extraordinary performance. She's almost so good that when she's not on screen, you're just slightly drumming your fingers until she's back again. But actually... <laughs> I don't know what you thought. I found it was a, a they did an extraordinary job of creating this whole world of this dilapidated Rust Belt town in yeah. Pennsylvania. And yes, there's a there's a sort of murder mystery at the centre of it, but it's also an incredible story about a family that's falling apart uh, and addiction and a marriage. And and at the heart of it is this enormous sorrow that Mayor herself, the uh, the Kate Winslet character carries all the time like a backpack mm. she looks weighed down by it but for anybody who hasn't seen it if you can watch it do um because uh, yeah it that was going to be my my first pick for for my top three to be honest sorry i got in there first <laughs> no that's fine I, i've actually i've literally got a list of sort of fallbacks that i can call on so that's that's not a problem let's move over to your picks then what are your top three well, uh, I think we've all forgotten about Line of Duty. Do you remember how immense Line of Duty was back in whenever it was, March, April, I think it was? How completely obsessed the nation was. Um, and it was a, I, it got a bit of stick, but I think it was I think it was a great series. And in a way, it was the sort of 
moment when scheduled television kind of hit back because this was a show that you could only watch at nine o'clock on Sunday night on BBC One and you could speculate all you liked for the rest of the week, but you weren't going to find out unless you couldn't, you know, stream it all on iPlayer as a box set. You had to wait. And that did something a bit special, I think. And obviously, you know, there were a million water cooler conversations and subreddits and Facebook groups and endless theories about what was going on. And what I love about Jeb Mercurio's world that he creates in that show is that it is so ridiculously complicated and... Uh, and fiddly that that it, it encourages that in a way that you usually only get with you know nerdy sort of sci-fi franchises and things like that and it obsessed the country for a while it was a real tv event and a real broadcast tv event and i and i loved it for that as well as having incredibly incredibly intense uh, moments in it i have to say uh we, we i'm now we've mentioned succession a couple of times and i'm afraid that's going to be my pick and I do apologize for that slightly because if you're not watching Succession and you've never watched Succession you must be so bored of hearing people telling you how brilliant it is and how you really should watch it but with that proviso it is also the most extraordinary television of our times um and uh it just the third series ended the other night and ended on a on a an incredible episode um and it is and I do love the way that this that this story about American billionaires and American capitalism, which captures that world, as far as I can tell, uh, extraordinarily well, um, is all written by a bunch of British writers in in Brixton, or something, in South London, um, uh, and it is uh, it, it gets talked about as if it's another big, intense sort of golden age of TV drama, but it's basically a comedy. It's a black comedy, and it is hilariously funny. And I think that's what people sometimes do- doesn't come across because yes, it has incredibly uh, intense, powerful stuff in it, and it's very—it's often called Shakespeare. And it's basically sort of King Lear, except if King Lear always wins. It's also uh, got some of the funniest dialogue uh, that's ever been uh, put out on a TV screen, I would say. Um, so sorry to everybody who's bored of having that recommended to it, but I'm going to recommend that again. I think you're absolutely right. And for me, it was it's kind of like The Great Gatsby, you know, where people always used to say, but there's no one likeable in The Great Gatsby. These are people who hadn't necessarily read the book. And you're kind of like, that's the point. They're all shallow, awful people. And why that's such a brilliant idea. And yet... And yet they're all shallow, awful people, but you always hope maybe they'll redeem one of them. Maybe Shiv will do the right thing. Maybe Kendall, but they never, they always let you down. Um, and because they're so destroyed by the, 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 the thing, they appear to have everything and actually they've got nothing. Um, so I know you were going to have Mayor of Easttown, but um, unfortunately I stole that from you. Can I put in a word for This Way Up, the Ashling B yes. uh, sitcom, with her and Sharon Horgan playing sisters? And if you just, because we've been recommending quite a lot of big stuff that's just a little be all it's all on all four um and it's a wonderful uh sitcom about two sisters about the uh, struggles of one woman who to sort of keep her mental health on track it's also about relationships it's uh, there's a little bit of uh businessy stuff in there it's satire it's brilliant it's beautifully observed it's brilliantly written and the dynamic between Ashling B and Sharon Horgan I haven't seen anything else like it in terms of getting across the sort of the tensions but also the love between two sisters uh, it's just a wonderful piece of work 
do let us know what your top threes of the year are. We are at podcast at radiotimes.com or Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Radio Times. Now, the Radio Times podcast team have been out and about. They've left their little booth next to us and they've been talking to you lovely listeners about your favourite shows of 2021. Let's hear that now. Hi, my name's Gabriel Dolan. In 2021, I have been watching Another Round. Hi, I'm Becky. My favourite thing is Money Heist. Hi, my name's Luke, Luke Shaw. I have to be Succession, I think. Senior, I've been watching Selling Sunset. It's a guilty pleasure. My name is Steven, I'm from Paris. I like 10%. I'm Flo, you don't know me, it's a BBC iPlayer. These are great. These are great picks. Some really new, some really old. That guy recommending another round. That's a wonderful Danish film about drink, basically. It's it's about alcoholism. It is with Mads Mikkelsen. It is phenomenal. It, it, and it's it's a it does a very odd thing that film, doesn't it? About kind of celebrating alcohol and drinking and cutting loose and so on but also the dark side of that comes out very clearly as well but it's a very touching film and a, and a very very funny film, a very wise film I think it's fair to say yeah absolutely if you do get a chance to see that film make sure you watch it now if you want a breakdown of the listings of all of the programs we've talked about today then do make sure you look at the episode notes wherever you get your podcasts so we are going to be on a christmas break next week we will be back with you on the 5th of january which just happens to be my birthday and something to look forward to in that episode I interview Shazad Latif, who stars in Toast of London, but he's going to be back in the new series Toast of Tinseltown as Clem Fandango. We'll also be talking about The Lost Daughter, starring Olivia Coleman, directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, and also Maxine Peake features, which... I'm such a huge fan of Maxine Peake. She's going to be in Anne, the ITV drama. And finally, the big one. The Big Thriller, which is absolutely terrifying, starring very beautiful man, Jamie Dornan. It's The Tourist. So loads and loads to look forward to in January. Follow and join us every single week. The Radio Times podcast is produced by Something Else for Immediate Media. Thank you so much, David, for stepping in and for being an incredible reviewer today. Great pleasure. We really appreciate having you on. And our thoughts go out to Jane. Let's hope she gets well soon. Loved Jane and happy Christmas, everyone. Thank you. Happy Christmas. Bye.